The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to be starting in verse 1. Today marks roughly the halfway point in our journey through the book of Genesis. Our series is titled, uh, Our Story Begins, and this title points us to the amazing truth that even though the Bible is God's story, he has graciously made humankind a part of it. Knowing that it is God who created us helps us see it is God alone who has the right to rule us, and that we will all one day answer for our response to his kingship. So this means, though over time our story as the human race has diverged across continents and cultures, we all came from the same place, we all have the same true purpose, and God desires the same destiny for us, and that is to be in loving relationship with him forever. So we've seen these things as we've moved through Genesis, uh, and we're breaking into a brand new chapter in Genesis 6 today, so we're going to read just eight verses, chapter 6, 1 through 8. Here we go. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said... My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Praise God for his word. Amen. So right off the bat here, let's say this. There is some weird and controversial stuff in these scriptures, okay? So uh, this is one of the places where the Bible tells us enough that we like to pridefully argue about it, but we should probably just be humble instead because it's not as clear as as some would like to make it seem. So we're going to deal with some of those things um, because we're not ignoring anything that's written here for our benefit. So Question one, who are the sons of God, right, that the scriptures mention here that took human wives, slept with them, and created what the NASB translates as Nephilim, which means fallen ones or giants. Uh, Some translations such as the KJV will simply say giants. Uh, Who are the sons of God? Okay, let me start off by saying there's not enough here for us to be totally sure. And so if somebody tells you they're totally sure, they shouldn't be totally sure, okay? However, there is, there's a few options of ways people have understood this, and it's, it's good for us to at least talk about, okay? So, 
Some folks have said that the sons of God listed here or discussed here, they're of the line of Seth. So if you remember, uh, Cain and Abel were the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain kills Abel, and then later on down the line, uh, God gives Seth. Um, Eve says, you know, God's given me another son in Seth because Cain killed Abel, right? So Seth, and then his, you know, all of the rest of the next chapter is basically tracing Seth's lineage. So basically, he kind of stuck with God's people, Cain killed his brother and went off to the land of Nod and was doing his own thing. So some, some people think that the sons of God here are of men of the line of Seth and the daughters of men were of the line of Cain, right? So they would be daughters of men, sons of God, that that's the distinction, okay? Uh, this, this is a possible explanation, but it does not explain well or at all the seemingly unnatural characteristics of the offspring of these sons of God and the daughters of of men, right? It says that uh, these were mighty men, men of renown, okay? It seems like there was something more going on here. Uh, and there's also an issue with the language of the sons of God. What are we trying to do? We're trying to figure out who the sons of God are in Genesis 6. Um, I don't know how big of a Bible you nerd you are or how much you know that this creates controversy, and this is a lot of like mystic knowledge, conspiracy theory type stuff. They, they, folks that are on that bandwagon really like Genesis 6 and try to make more of it than is really there. So it's good for you to at least be able to talk about this and know what the Bible does say and doesn't say. Um, or, you know, you, you might be watching the recent Noah movie and see these rock monster things and go, wow, where's those in my Bible? And go find, you know, try to find them. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert, they're not in here. So uh, artistic license, right? Amen. So uh, the, the language, the sons of God, is used three times in the book of Job. And in the book of Job, each time it's referring to fallen angelic beings otherwise known as demons, okay? I know that's weird language to call them the sons of God, but it happens three times in Job, and it definitely fits the context here, especially in light of other things we're going to say. So Jude also picks up on this. Seems like Jude had a lot to say about this area of Genesis, uh, and he seems to be addressing the possibility of demons behaving in the way Genesis 6 describes. I'm going to read Jude, just one chapter, so it's Jude verse 6 through 7, okay? It says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Okay? So Jude's talking about that in the same way in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, that these angelic beings left their abode and basically did the same thing that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. They sought after strange flesh, sinned sexually, basically. That's what it's talking about. So now at this juncture, I'm assuming you have some questions, uh, <laughs> and I have some questions too. So like first one that comes to my mind is, so like how do demons mate with human women, right? That's real creepy and just weird to think about. Um, is this a place where legend got mixed in with the truth of the Bible and we just forgot to edit that? Or what, what's going on here? Because that seems very weird. And it, it, it is weird. Um, Jesus teaches in Matthew that angels do not marry, right? So what we have to remember that when Jesus is talking about angels not marrying, he's talking about in, in the later time, and he's talking about obedient angels, right? So there's that to consider. To, to be clear about how this happened... We don't know for sure, but based on all we know from the scriptures, it's likely 
that these angels possessed human men and in doing so passed some of their traits through them into the offspring known as the Nephilim. Okay? Again, it's weird, and the Bible left us without more detail. However, one good question about why all this has even come up is, is like, why? Why would that happen, right? Is it just that the daughters of men were hotties? I don't know. I don't think so, because the Bible doesn't give us this clear answer, but, but there's a whole lot of solid Bible thinkers and theologians throughout church history that they've looked at this account, what it leads to, what happened and what it leads to, and, and they've gone back then and, and thought about God's plan of redemption revealed in Genesis 3. If you remember when we were there, Genesis 3, God begins to respond to the cosmic betrayal of our first parents, and what he says to the serpent is that, um, that the seed of woman... The seed of the woman, uh, there was going to be enmity between uh, them and that uh, he would, basically he would bite the heel of this, this seed of the woman, but that that seed of the woman would crush his head. And so God had already tipped his hand a little bit and said that somehow through the, the lineage of Eve, there was going to come someone that was going to defeat Satan. And uh, what, what is likely happening here is that or possibly happening here, is that if Satan could infect the entire human gene pool with some kind of demonic influence, uh, which if these guys were great warriors and big and strong, you know, survival of the fittest is a real thing, so it's possible that was the plan. But if the entire human race has, has got this demonic influence, oppression, possession going on, the, that promised seed of woman that was going to crush uh, the head of Satan would not be able to be born. And so this is a feeble attempt of the enemy to try to undo God's revealed plan of redemption. Um, you may be thinking, okay, so this happened in Genesis 6. What, hap- what stops that from happening now, right? Is this still going on? And if that's the case, like, you know, should we be handing out crucifixes to all the ladies so that if they go meet a guy for coffee for the first time, you know, they're touching him on the forehead with it or whatever to make sure what we don't have here is <laughs> some kind of demon trying to make giant warrior babies with her, right? Like, is that real? And that's a good question. If that happened then, and, and, and if you read carefully, Genesis 4, it says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, pre-flood, and also afterward, right? Uh, if you think about it, you've got Goliath on down the line that is probably a descendant of this unholy union between demons and women. Uh, demon-possessed men and women, uh, most likely. So, is it a concern today? Well, thankfully, no, because I'm going to read Jude 6 again. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So, at some point along the line, God clamped down on these extra rebellious demons or whatever they are. Again, we don't totally know, but Jude has made it clear that they are in eternal bonds. That, that stuff is not going on anymore. So it, I know it's already wild enough to be out there looking for a husband or wife. So you don't have to put, you know, <laughs> let's make sure this isn't a demon. I'm meeting for coffee on your list of things to be worried about, okay? Uh, although maybe people act like it sometimes. But uh, Also in the books of Joshua and 1 Samuel, we're told when Israel invaded the land of Canaan, they wiped out all the physical descendants um, of these sinful unions. So basically they went in, all the giants, all the mighty men that came out of this crazy stuff happened in Genesis 6. Uh, by God's strength, they, they were wiped out uh, when Israel took possession of the promised land, okay? So there's that. 
Now, <laughs> uh, I gave you some of the options that we've been able to piece together from what the Bible says about these verses in Genesis 6. I did that so that, because we don't want to skip or ignore them. We believe what God says about his word, that all of this is beneficial. It's things we need to think about and know about. But also I wanted to show you by addressing it that if the Bible didn't give us more solid, concrete details than it did, then we can be sure that they would not be helpful or that that's not the point he's getting at, okay? And a lot, there's a lot of times in the Bible I wish, I wish there was more said than there was. I've got questions, Lord. I've got questions, right? <laughs> there's details here that seem to be missing, but we can be sure if the Bible doesn't give us those. Um, that doesn't mean we're not lazy and we don't go look because sometimes it's in another place and we got to do some digging, but there are times where less is said than we would like. If that's the case, we can always be sure more details wouldn't have helped us and that's not even the point. Sometimes things need to be explained to get to a greater point, and that's really what's happening here. Uh, and when we encounter things like this, what's going on in, in Genesis 6, a lot of times people are tempted to, you know, they'll jump into a YouTube like black hole of conjecture and assumption, and that really tends to just lead to unhelpful assumptions and confusion. There's a lot. I don't know. Don't go looking for it on YouTube if you haven't already encountered it, but man, there's, there's people that just get all twisted up about these few verses in Genesis 6, um, and it, it, it can get really weird really fast. Weirder than it already is. <laughs> uh, you know, I digress. So here, here's the principle. Here's, here's part of why we took the time to do that. And, and just remember this, if, if you need a take-home principle, here it is. Fixation upon details the Bible doesn't give us only leads to us missing the real point God is teaching us through his word. Okay? That's the big idea. Fixation on details the Bible doesn't give us only leads us to missing the point. The real point. And that's what happens a lot of times. Tragically, people will come to a certain set of verses. I was talking to a guy today uh, that we're, we're kind of reading through the Bible together, and we hit uh, the uh, Jesus and the miracle of him turning water into wine. And, and so he said, okay, so explain to me what's going on there. So I, I break it down to him because there's, like, there's some beautiful stuff happening there that is easy to miss. But So we're talking about that, and, and then we got to the point of discussing, you know, it's a tragedy that most of the time... <laughs> That parable gets reduced to cannon fodder for people to debate about alcohol and Christians, right? And they totally miss the beauty of the parable, man, that those jars that Jesus is turning the water into wine, man, those are ceremonial washing jars. And if I, don't have, if I get into what's going on there, then we are not going to get Genesis 6 done, so I'm going to just back right out of that. But, man, there's some beauty there, and uh, it's easy to miss, so we don't want to do that. Um, so let's, let's not get fixated on things the, the Bible doesn't focus on. So the point here, Genesis 6, was not the specifics of how this went down. It was the damage that it led to and how God felt about it. And I use that word on purpose. And verses 5 through 8 kind of walk us through that. So that's where we're going to spend the uh, rest of our time. So what we see in verses 5 through 8, we get a window into the complex emotional life of God. And I think this is a helpful window because it's very hard for us to grapple with an, an omniscient, omnipotent, fully powerful God that also has a range of emotions and understanding how those things can work together. And so sometimes I think we unintentionally reduce God down uh, to a place that makes us interpret what he does or doesn't do in a way that is, is unfair and, and, and just not true. So there's, there's some principles here that we can draw from verses 5 through 8, and, and so we're going to work through those together as we get a window into God's emotional response to this great wickedness and this, this devastation 
uh, upon the earth and upon his people. So the, the, the first thing I want to point out to you um, that we can see out of verses 5 through 8 is, is because we see here that uh, the Lord was sorry that he made men on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. The first thing I want to just key in on is that uh, you are not alone in your grief. That you are not alone in your grief. We see here that God is not the one-dimensional being we often reduce him to in our minds. But he has an emotional complexity that is far beyond our own. And, and as we read this, I hope you're thinking, verse 6 is difficult. The Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Uh, some translations will even use the word regret, and it's fine. It's, it's still conveying the same thing. So how, if we're talking about omnipotent, omniscient, um, God with perfect foreknowledge exists outside of time, how then could God regret, right, or be sorry that he made man? That doesn't seem to line up. How does, how does a perfect God who knows all things ever have a regret? Because of this in other texts where it seems God regrets things or God changes his mind, uh, some folks have come to the place where they believe God is not the all-knowing Alpha and Omega who exist outside of the limitations of time. And that seems like a logical conclusion. If you hear the Bible say here and in other places, God, God was sorrowful. He, he repented of his, this and such decision or he changed his mind or he regretted making man. That, that, that's a logical conclusion that seems like, whoop, God missed something, right? How do you regret something if you didn't, like, whoops, you know? That's, that's typically how we think of it. But Though it's a logical conclusion, it does not line up with what God has revealed about himself in his word. So we're going to have to work a little harder on this. Here's something we need to realize as we approach this and understand the way God works. We tend to think of regret as something that is the result of imperfect knowledge and imperfect foreknowledge. Let me say it another way. If we all knew the future perfectly... And how many of you have ever honestly hoped for that? I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that would be cool. If we all knew the future perfectly, most of us assume we would never have any regrets. Every regret that we would think back to, we, we, we tend to think, okay, if, if I would have known that was coming, I would have made a different decision. I would have made the right decision, which would have averted that or that or that. And I wouldn't, if I knew the whole future, I would never have any regrets. And that's, it's, it's a perfectly logical way to think. However, uh, what we're saying there is we, if we knew the right course of action in every circumstance, we would never, ever regret our choices. But that doesn't really, if we press, that doesn't really reflect the reality of a world that is broken by sin. Because sometimes even right, the right choice will leave us with regret. And we would still make that choice again. I have what may be a seemingly silly example, but it, it's, it was fresh in my mind and, and I think it it makes the point. So uh, recently, me and my kids found the uh, 1990s version uh, of animated Superman series on Amazon Prime. That's where it's at. So go find that because it's rad if you like Superman. So uh, we've had a, we're having a great time watching that. And uh, it's cool because we're, we're, as we're doing it, we're always like discussing the themes and Moral dilemmas presented in the story. My kids are constantly like, why'd they do that, Dad? What does that mean, Dad? Like, what's going on here, Dad? What, what? You know, and it's like, okay, you know, I want to, they're keying in on this and they're getting it, so I want to stop and take those 
examples and, and, and teach them something through it, but sometimes I just want to see Superman use laser eyes on something, you know what I mean? So it's like, save your questions till the end, man. This is only 20 minutes long, but no, well, we, we stop and we deal with it right when it hits their little heads because something else is probably coming. So, um, uh, And I hope you parents watch TV with your kids like that. It's, it, it's really, it brings things up that it's hard to get to any other ways, but storytelling is a great way to get them thinking. So uh, but one of the recent episodes of Superman, this, this situation happened, right? So some bad guys, they hijack this train uh, full of artifacts, and there's just one artifact they're after. So they, they kind of flew in and busted in, and they're digging through stuff, and Superman gets, gets word of it or hears it, I don't know, 10 miles away. And so he flies into the thing. He starts roughing everybody up. You know, they feel like ninja stars at him. Of course, that didn't work. It's Superman. So, you know, he tosses them around or whatever, but uh, he kind of gets everybody but the leader, right? And then the leader uh, bends down and picks up the thing they came for, and, uh, you know, Superman's kind of blocking the hole out of the, the top of the train car. And so she pulls out this remote control and hits the button. And the, the train track of a few miles ahead explodes at a bridge, okay? And here's what she says. She's like, all right, you can stop me or you can stop the train. Your choice, okay? So what does Superman do? Superman flies out, goes and stops the train because there's a bunch of people on the train. There's people that will be killed if the train goes off the bridge. So uh, that's what he does. He chooses that, and that means she, she did get away. And, and a bunch of extra bad stuff happened later on in the episode because she got away. But here's the thing. Even if he had known that, Superman would have still stopped the train. It was the right thing to do. But that doesn't mean he didn't regret the results of the choice to let her get away. You see what I'm saying? Now, don't get confused. Superman's not God, and I'm not trying to say that. But this is just a kind of silly example in a, in a comic book cartoon of how regret doesn't always mean I would have made a different choice. Right? And that's definitely not what it means when God talks about it. God knew precisely how bad humanity would get when he made us. His sense of sorrow or remorse here in Genesis 6 is not saying that he wishes he could go back and make a different decision. What it means is that he feels and regrets the damage his choice created, but he would make it again. Here's one thing we can always remember, and it will be hard for you to believe that this is true sometimes. You will have to, by faith, grab this, and sometimes you will just have to, by faith, believe it because it won't make sense. But here's the truth. If God did it, it is right. If God did it, it is right. But here's the other thing. God is not so cold and calculated as we unfortunately often imagine. And that's part of what Genesis 6 opens up here, the kind of the emotional complexity of God. I think oftentimes we think of God not having an emotional response. If you already know everything that's going to happen, it's like there are no surprises. If you're totally omnipotent and totally all-powerful and, and you're all-knowing and you're everywhere, uh, then like what? that doesn't seem like a being that would have an emotional response. But what we're seeing here is very much so. As the wickedness of the world increases, as, as uh, it, the thoughts of men are o- is only wicked continually, as rebellion increases, there's more damage and more pain as a result. It gets, it doesn't, God doesn't just react in, in this mechanical way because he knows what's next. There's a reaction at the heart level of God. It matters to him. He grieves and has sorrow 
over the destruction that sin wrought, that sin brings. There's another place where this, this principle comes up, and it's in 1 Samuel 15. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 11, uh, God says, I regret, or some, sometimes translations will say repent. I repent of making Saul king, right? You guys remember that story? Israel begs for a king. God says, I want to be your king. They're like, no, we want a king like everybody else. So, okay, so King Saul is made king. Um, it doesn't go well. It goes basically like God said it would. Human king was, was a bad idea. But in verse 11, God says, I regret making Saul king. That's verse 11. And then verse 29 of the same chapter, okay? Verse 29 of the same chapter, we're 18 verses below, says this. The glory of Israel, which is capitalized, that's a name for God. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret or repent, for he is not a man that he should have regret or repent. You guys see the problem here? Verse 11 said, God, God says, I repent of making Saul king. 18 verses later, it says, the glory of Israel will not repent, or he will not lie. He's not a man that he should do those things. Hmm? Right? I mean, that, that, you should get the dog, if you're paying attention, the dog whistle look should be happening. Like, what? what, what but what's going on there? It's because there is a sense in which God can regret and repent, but it's not in the same way that a man does. The Hebrew word's the same. You can be like, well, what about the Hebrew? Go get the Hebrew, man. The Hebrew word's the same both times. It's, it's, it's not an it's original language issue. It's an understanding issue. It's seeing that when God speaks of regret, uh, it's, it's on a different level. It's real, and it, it's, it's a way to express the pain of his heart at the sin of his people, but it doesn't mean he regrets the choice or that he would have done something different had he been privy to some other information because that's just not true. God's already got all the info. Uh, God's regret is not like our regret. We may wish we could go back and do something different, but God is never caught off guard by how things play out. And so he would only ever have done what he has done. Now, you might be going, uh, hey man, you're supposed to make theological stuff apply to my life. Well, I'm glad you stayed. We're, now we're here, okay? It, it does, this stuff matters, man. You might be like, oh, it's very philosophical, I don't know. It matters. It matters, first of all, that God has emotions. It matters that God is bothered by sin. It matters that God gets to the point of sorrow in his heart that it could be described as regret. All of this will make more sense as we keep going. But just flat out, one thing we need to know, the fact that God's regret is not like our regret. Every time the Bible uses that language, it doesn't mean he wishes he would have made a different decision. It doesn't mean he's tempted to go back on what he said. And that's real encouraging when you think in terms of God's promises to us, because if God was a God that was lesser than he really is, if he was somehow confused some days, if there was times when he had done something or said something and regretted like we regret, then how could we stand upon the promises of his word that are supposed to echo down through the generations and be something we stand upon and build a life upon and place our hope in for all eternity? He does not regret the way we regret. And that's real encouraging. Here's what that means. You can't be so bad that when every single time the Bible says God's intention is to love you and to save you and how he wants beautiful fellowship with you forever, that can never be untrue. God has, what God has said, God has said, and it will be done. He will not, you won't get bad enough that he's going to regret a promise he's declared to you in his word and pull it back. He doesn't regret like that. 
He doesn't go back like that. He didn't, you didn't somehow figure out a way to be so vile and so terrible that God won't be faithful to you. I hope that encourages you. And, 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 and maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum today and saying, well, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm not worried about that. Well, well hallelujah. Someday we'll get you to the point of realizing that you're in more danger than the person that really realizes they're jacked up, okay? But everybody, that should be encouraging. God will not go back on his word. He will not, in the same sense that a human regrets, say, you know what? I need a redo. I, I, shouldn't have, I shouldn't have declared my faithfulness to these people for all generations. I shouldn't have said that all who will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I shouldn't have told them I will be with them and I will stand with them and they shouldn't fear because I am God and I am with them because the, the vile stench of their sin is too much in my nostrils. That's not going to happen. He's already been ahead and he's been behind and he's seen every single place that you're going to fail and he said with absolutely 100% eternal conviction, I love you and I'm for you and I want you and my promises to you are true. That doesn't mean he doesn't feel a sense of regret when the right things he has done, that, that out of that there is still destruction and pain because of what we do and because of what the enemy does, what the forces of darkness do. That is the sense in which God regrets. I don't know if you saw it, but I'm hoping you get it by the end. These few little verses, five to eight, show us a, a, a deep and a beautiful window into the emotional life of God. And we learn a lot about his character. And it's a way for us to conquer, if we'll take this truth for what it is, it's a way for us to conquer many lies that cause us to be double-minded about whether or not we can trust God. Because I'm sure for some of you, you've read those verses. You've seen where it says, well, I, God says, I repent of making Saul king. I'm sure, I'm sure you've read Genesis 6 before, right? Uh, you know, <laughs> every time folks try to read the Bible through, they always make it through Genesis. It's when you get to numbers that it's like, oh, you know, you fall off the bandwagon. So we've all read Genesis 6 a few times, probably, if you've been around the things of God for a minute of time, and you've probably hit these verses where it said, God says, I, re I regret. I regret making man. I'm sorrowful that I made them. It's because his heart is reached and his heart is broken over the results of sin doesn't mean he would make a different choice. If he did it, it was the right one, and he'll stick to it because he's perfect. Uh, seeing that God's perfect foreknowledge doesn't make him cold towards the painful results of sin uh, is, is helpful for us because when we think that God's foreknowledge is perfect, when we think he's already got all the answers, which he does, we think then there's, there's, no, there's no emotional gravity to the situation. God's just kind of going through the motions until everything wraps up. But that isn't the way we see it described here. Did God know what was going to happen in Genesis 6, that there was going to be wickedness and demons, you know, making giant babies with women and, and, and all of the thoughts of mankind Several theologians that I was reading on this said that you couldn't have, there's not a more harsh way to describe the, the state of mankind than all of their thoughts were wicked continually. All of them. Like, whoo, that's, that's a bad situation. That's, that's, that's evil. That's terrible. And, and when we think that all God is doing is mechanical and kind of cold because he's, he does know everything that's happening, uh, it leaves us in a place that it makes us less willing to trust what he has said is true. 
it's important for us to grasp this. Psalm 34, 18 says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. What does that mean, friend? When you are struggling, when you are going through your own series of regrets and running that mental merry-go-round that just feels like it takes you to the edge of sanity, when you're struggling, when you're in pain, when you're regretting choices, when you're suffering the, the, the sorrow and the pain of other people's choices, God is not across the room with a stopwatch and a frown, seeing how long it's going to take you to stop hurting and to trust him. That's not God's posture. When you're struggling, Psalm 34 says he is near you. He gets right down next to you. And here's the thing, friend. If you get right down next to somebody, you're feeling what they're feeling. You're connecting with it. You're empathizing with it. God is not distant. He is near the brokenhearted, and he's feeling what you're feeling. He's in the mix with you. And he's not, he's not coldly just waiting for you to get to the point where you'll have enough faith and not feel that pain. I know for so many of you that's because Christians have acted that way, because your perception of God is that he's, very, he's just this sterile, cold, kind of mechanical deal. Friends, that's what I'm trying to say today. Genesis 5 through 8 shows us that is not the God we're dealing with. We're dealing with a God that feels the effects of sin and brokenness and pain. And he feels yours. And when you're brokenhearted and you're struggling, he is near and that's something that will help us as his people to know how to help people that are in pain and struggling. Friends, sometimes you just have to be willing to be near. Don't feel like you have to have all the answers. Don't feel like you always have to say the right thing. Sometimes what somebody needs is just for you to be close, for them to understand that you see they're hurting and that you care about it. God is that for us, every single one of us. And he would call us as his people to be that with others. He is near he hurts with you and for you and more than you, and he cares. That's the God we're dealing with. And some of you have stayed at distance from him because you weren't sure you could trust somebody that couldn't understand what you're going through. Friends, he does. He does. He, he has suffered more betrayal than we could ever possibly fathom. He has felt the effects of sin to degrees that we cannot imagine. God understands God has a heart that is grieved, and his heart hurts when your heart hurts. He's near to the brokenhearted. We know that the Lord Jesus understands the duality of trusting God fully and yet agonizing over the situation he was in. Do you guys remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have the Lord Jesus fully committed to the plan of the Father, and yet praying and, and agonizing with such intensity that drops of blood are coming out in the sweat of his forehead. A level of agony, a level, a level of anguish that I'm not sure we can even connect with. And, and yet, it was not because he was in a lack of faith. It wasn't because he wasn't committed to what God had asked him to do. All that was true, and this level of pain and misery and difficulty was still true. And that's, we need to quit being harsh with our judgments about people that are struggling and saying, well, if you're struggling like that, then it must be because lack of faith, or you just not willing to trust the Lord, or whatever it is. I think Jesus had the faith. I think Jesus trusted the Lord. I don't know, eternal part of the Trinity probably was in on the trust meter. It was okay. 
yet suffered such agony in the garden, anticipating the upcoming arrest and torture and subsequent separation from God the Father to pay the price for our sins, that drops of blood flowed from his forehead and his sweat. You're not alone in your grief. God does understand. God feels it, and he's near. We can see that here. Another thing that this shows us is that we, we need to be aware of the fact that we can, we can grieve the heart of God. It's easier for us to look back at Genesis 6 and say, yeah, there was demon warrior babies and everyone was thinking wicked. Man, that was a bad time. Good thing the flood came. And, and not connect the reality that God's heart was grieved by sin then. But dear friend, every single time someone chooses to disobey the benevolent boundaries he's given us, the, God, the heart of God is grieved. And I, don't th- I think oftentimes we think in terms of his, his anger, but not so much his grief. Let me read this to you. Mark uh, chapter 3, this is verses 1 through 6. Jesus is having a run-in with the Pharisees. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they may destroy him. Keying in on Jesus' response, he was grieved. He was grieved at the hardness of their hearts. Friends, love for God, love for God, the first and and premium commandment among them all. Love for God is the truest and strongest deterrent against sin. There are so many ways we try to work against and avoid sin. And anytime you're striving against sin, I'm, I'm not coming against you in that, but we need to see that the first and the best is love for God and pushing back against the temptation of sin. If we understand that God is not waiting for us to mess up so he can punish us, That's not his posture. He is grieved at the hardness of heart that allows us to sin. It changes the way we see everything. If if among the thoughts that come to our mind when we're tempted is not just the temporal consequences of our sin, I think we, you know, so many times Israel is is described in their... uh, in their journeys with the Lord from Egypt on forward as a, a, a rebellious and stiff-necked people. And it's easy to see, right? They, they, you know, they're five minutes out of Egypt. They're complaining about the food and this and that. Very ungrateful. Part of why God has those scriptures in the Bible is so that they would act as a mirror and so you'd see yourself there. <laughs> you are a rebellious and stiff-necked person. Can you, can, this is risky. Go ahead and say it. Say, I'm rebellious. Let me hear you say that. You are, man. How many stiff-necked people? How many of you know you're stiff-necked? Go ahead and let me see your hand in the air. Yes, we are, man. And that's the problem. It's, there's, there's a hardness of our heart. Every time we choose to disobey God instead of obey God, we have to have this hardness of heart that Jesus encountered that allowed these guys to treat him the way they did that in, in this instance. Most of the time we imagine God angry over sin. And this is true. He is. However, we need to also see and connect to the truth that he is grieved and broken 
parted over every sin. Every single one. And here's the thing. Think of the person you love the most. The person you love the most in the whole world. What, what part of you wants to cause them to have grief in their heart? Would you ever do something intentionally for them to describe what it caused is grief in their heart? That's, that's not how we treat people we love. But I think a lot of times we're not connecting to the fact that not just is our sin disobedient to God, not just does it stir his anger because every time we sin, it's actually harming us, and that's why he's angry about it, it's because he loves us so much and wants to protect us from the pain that results in sin. But do, do we really connect with the fact that this is, this is breaking the heart of Father God that loves me as much as he's loved me, that's proved how much he loved me? He hasn't just talked a big talk, but he sent his son to the cross to die for me. Do I want to, is what this thing I'm contemplating doing, is it worth grieving his heart? I know, and, and sometimes, man, we, in our rebellion and stiff neck, just absolute pride and, and we're stubborn, sometimes we, we can get to the point where we don't care about the temporal consequences. We don't care about the fact that it may mean this or that or the other thing. If we really want it or we're just feeling hard-headed that day, but we, we need our hearts to connect to the heart of God to the degree. We need to love him to the degree that it's going gonna, it's gonna to slow us down and make us think, man, do I want to break the heart of God with this choice? Do I want to cause my father that much pain? Do I want to? And, and part of why we started the way we started is, I, I think a lot of times why we don't think about that is because we don't think it, God would be affected like that. Because if you know everything and you're God and you're the king and you're on the throne above every other throne, what does it matter that little old me's doing what I'm doing over here hiding in the corner? But friend, he sees you and he loves you and he's paying attention to every detail and it matters to him. And he cares. And if we love him, we're, we're, this doesn't mean we won't stumble into sin. This doesn't mean that we won't, in our foolishness, sometimes be deceived. But man, we're going to at least care about it. And not, in a flippant way, just go about what we're doing. Not caring about how it affects the heart of a God this good. Every single painful result of sin in the world, all the sickness and tragedy and evil, all the things that bother us, and, and, and what that happens, a lot of times what happens is it causes many to question God's goodness. The, the darkness of the world, the difficulty, what's missing there is one important truth. If the difficulty and the darkness and the, and the pain in the world, if it leads you to question God's goodness, there, there's one thing we're missing. Every one of those things that hurt our hearts, it hurts his heart to an infinitely higher degree. Because I know with the 24-hour news cycle and social media, we are inundated every second with another tragedy. And I know that it seems like we've we reached capacity on that. And that's part of maybe why so many people are being shaken in their faith, coming to a place. How could there be this much pain? How could there be this much sorrow? How could there be this much that seems so radically unfair in the world if God is so good and so powerful? But friends, here's what I need you to see. I know you feel overcome and overwhelmed by all the tragedy that you see out there, but understand something. We, we see we see one one billionth of what's actually going on in the darkness and the hearts of what's going on in the world. We don't see, so many tragedies don't make the news cycle. They don't make Facebook. There's difficulty all over the world. There is brokenness to degrees that you cannot even possibly imagine in dark corners and in other places. And you know what? God sees every one of those. And he deals and grapples with the effect of that. His heart is broken 
to a far greater degree, infinitely more, over the effects of sin than ours is. That doesn't make him not powerful or not good. That, that makes him that much better. But he is a God that connects and cares. He's not sterile. He hasn't figured out a way. He hasn't, he hasn't done this thing where he can, yes, the world's going to have to go through some suffering, but I can step back from it and I just get to enjoy at the end when everybody's together at the wedding feast of the Lamb. God's down in the mix of this thing, experiencing all of it. More than we could ever imagine. And he cares. Someone might say, if God's so powerful, why didn't he just stop all these bad things from happening? Guys, the only way to have children that are free to love God and obey him or not, and to never have painful results out of their disobedience is to not have them at all. If you want to have children that can love you or not, obey you or not, I mean, th this isn't that hard to understand. If, if you want to have a house that is always clean and there's never any back talk and there's never an issue, you just need to not have kids, right? But that, that was untenable to the, to the Lord God. He, that, that option was worse. And we could question that. We could decide we want to be God and, and say the other thing would be better. Well, he just should have never made anything. Well, that's not for us to decide. To not have us at all is clearly worse to God than having us and having to endure the pain of our sin and rebellion. And what does that mean about him? <laughs> what does that mean about his great love and affection for us? What does that mean about the value that he places upon us? Man, doesn't that make you want to serve him? Doesn't that make you want to obey him? Doesn't it make you want to love him? And you might be saying to me right now, listen, you know, I say I love God, but I don't even know if what you're saying matters to me right now. I don't, I don't know if my love for him makes me not want to grieve his heart. Well, friend, then please, please take that to God in prayer and ask him if that's the case. If you're hearing what I'm saying and it just doesn't matter, then, then the same heart that was in those Pharisees, a hard heart that allowed them to sit there and try to entrap Jesus about healing a withered man's hand on the Sabbath, that level of hardness is, is possible for you today. But Jesus can rescue you from that too. Jesus can help you with that. He can come in by his Holy Spirit and he can melt that stone around your heart. He'll, he'll take that, that stone thing and he'll make it flesh. He's doing it every day. And he wants to. How could God be willing to endure the pain of our sin and rebellion? How could he be willing to do that? Well, some of how it's possible is because God is the first and most prolific visionary ever. He has a vision, and he has a plan, and he knows it's going to be worth it. And he's revealed enough of that to us to know where he's heading with this thing. Before he ever said, let there be light, the end game was already in his mind. That wedding supper of the Lamb, where the righteous by faith in Christ are standing in the throne room where there are people from every tribe, nation, and tongue declaring the glory of God, basking in his absolutely unveiled glory where the very light of his face is what gives us light. There's no need for a sun where there's no pain and there's no sickness and there's no chance of sin separating us again. That ultimate vision was there before he ever uttered the words, let there be light. And he knew absolutely every place his heart was going to be broken in between, let there be light, and it is finished. And we're there with him. He saw it all, 
And in, in his divine calculation, he said, they're worth it. I'm going to do this. I want them. Oh, friends, don't you love him? What a good God. The last thing we see here is that God is willing and able to extend favor. I just spent a lot of time trying to convince you that you can grieve the heart of God and that you need to care about it. But don't let that leave you in a place of despair because God doesn't want you to be there. Here's what verse 8 says. It says, but Noah, it paints this picture. Everything's wicked. The, the contemplations of men's heart are, are always continually wicked. The, the earth's filling with these kinds of people. By the way, Jesus taught one time that uh, before the Son of Man returns, it's going to be like the days of Noah. People are going to be multiplying everywhere. Evil continually in the thoughts of men. There's a few other things if you go in there and look, man. I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to get a billboard and say, you know, next September 23rd is when he's coming back. I'm just telling you right now. We're one day closer than we were yesterday, and stuff's lining up. So can we get serious about this, I guess is my question. Hallelujah. God is willing to extend favor. All that was true, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Here's what Psalm 51, verse 12 says. For it is you, speaking of God, who blesses the righteous man. O Lord, you surround him with favor as with a shield. Friends, the favor of God is available to you. And if you listen to what I just said in that psalm, you said, uh-oh, there's an issue. You said, uh-oh, there's an issue. The righteous man is the one that the Lord encases with favor like a shield. You might say, I'm not righteous. I don't fit that description. Well, friends, that's, there's a fundamental misunderstanding there that I, I hope to fix for you by the power of God right now. There's only one way. There's only one way any man, any sinful man or woman has ever been declared righteous. There's one way, and it's the same way that Noah was declared righteous. Here's what Hebrews 11:7 7 says. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah wasn't a good guy. He, he wasn't somehow better than all the rest of the wickedness out there, and that's what God, how God curried his favor. Here's what Noah did. He believed God. It's by faith Noah was seen as righteous. It's by faith Abraham was seen as righteous. It's by faith in God that Joseph did what he did. It's by faith that Moses returned to Pharaoh with a staff and a word from God to come up against the most powerful ruler that had ever been. It's by faith that David didn't take Saul's life when he could have. It's by faith that David ran out there in front of that Philistine giant and called him out outside of his name. It's, it's by faith that the exiled Israelites went into another land forlorn and broken. It's by faith that Nehemiah came back and built the wall. It's by faith that every single person that has ever been found righteous in God's sight, including you and including me, if by God's grace we are that today, it's by faith that we are made righteous. We can have God's favor. You can have God's favor. And I know there's so many ways where you have guilt because of you have broken God's heart. You have broken God's law. You have disregarded and, and not, not, there's been moments where you didn't care about whether his heart was grieved. Friends, his favor, his favor is not determined upon whether you've done better than somebody else or you've done good enough to meet your own expectations. His favor comes down to this. Can you believe this beautiful truth? The earth is full of wickedness. Ever since man's been here, it's been that way. There, there, there is, we, have, we have a never-ending imagination in ways to disobey this God who's been so good and loving to us. And yet, through all of that, he has worked a plan of redemption that culminated a crescendo, the prophesied coming of King Jesus. 
Bethlehem, he comes, he's born of a virgin, man. The prophecies, they come true. He lives a perfect life. And then he comes to the place where these guys that didn't like him in Mark for healing the withered man's hand, they figure out a way to get the crowds riled up. They drag him away from his friends. They, They beat him and they scourge him and they put a crown of thorns upon his head. They take him and they crucify him and they jeer at him. And they watch him die there. But what they weren't expecting is that three days later, just like he said he would, he would come up out of the grave. That stone that sealed him in, it was rolled away. And he he came triumphant, declaring that all that God had said was true, all the way through the Old Testament and up, that favor and righteousness were available for sinners who were lost otherwise. And it's by faith. It's by faith that Noah was called righteous. It's by faith that Noah found favor. And today, friend, that's the question for you. Will you believe what the Bible says? Will you believe that each and every one of us has fallen short of perfection, that none of us is good enough? You can embrace that fully. You don't have to keep running to coping mechanisms. You are not good enough. You can grab that and you can own it, but you can only own it if you grab the other side of the gospel, which says, yes, I'm not good enough to earn it, but God will give it to me anyways because of his mercy and his grace and his great love for me. And so, yes, I'm wretched, but yes, I'm loved. Yes, I'm broken, but yes, I have hope. Yes, everyone else would count me out, but God will never give up on me. All of these are true at the same time. So I don't have to hide, I don't have to be fake, and I don't have to cope. I can be truthful about all of it, and by faith, I can walk as righteous in God's sight. Will you believe the gospel? That's the question. That's the only question. Our great hope and prayer is that you will. Praise God that it's available to every person. The Bible says in so many places that what Christ came to do was to come into the world. I read it today in John. John the Baptist, Jesus rolls down to the Jordan. What's he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's who we're dealing with. Will you trust him? Will you receive the free gift of salvation? It's here and it's available for you. Praise God that that's true. May we be a people who avoid majoring on the minors and seek to find the point God is making in his word. May we be a people who understand God's heart is broken over sin and ask for his help to please him instead of grieve him. And may we be a people who walk in the favor of God, knowing that it is by grace through faith in Christ alone that we have received it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. We thank you, God, for these verses. There are difficult things here. There are things that are hard to understand. There are things we wish we had more details about. But God, we ask you to help us to have the humility that when we approach things in your word that are not as clear as we would like, or there's not as de- many details as we would like, God, help us to realize you must be making another point. There's something else you want us to focus on. God, help us to... <laughs> Help us avoid the satanic trap of being distracted by details in your word that you didn't include on purpose. May we trust you, Lord, that what you have written to us is what we need. It's what we need to know you, to love you, to obey you, to trust you. Thank you that your word is sufficient. Thank you that your word is what we need. God, we are so thankful. We're so thankful that you inspired 40 different authors over the span of 1,500 years 
write these words of yours so that we would have them, so that we could feast upon them, so that we could learn them and we could be encouraged and we could stand upon them, God. Lord, there's so much about what Genesis 6 says that resonates with us today. I don't know if the world has always looked this wicked or if we have just been made more aware of it because of technology, but Lord, there is brokenness and sin, there is hate, and there is so much to be discouraged about everywhere we look. God, help us not to just retreat and crawl back because of that. Lord, help us to run to the hurt the way you run to us. You said you're near the brokenhearted, and you save those that are crushed in spirit. God, please work in us a desire not to, not to run from things because they're awkward or to leave people bleeding because we don't know how to deal with it. God, may we trust that you will empower us to go into difficult situations where we're way above our head and help us help. We want to, Lord. We want to love like you do. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that, thank you that we see in these verses that you are not cold, that you are not distant, that you are not sterile, but that you have inserted yourself in the middle of this mess that we've created that you feel what we feel and far more. Lord, help us. Help us to see why that means you are that much more trustworthy. Help us to see the wonder of your love as we understand to the degree that your heart is grieved because of the condition of the world, because of rebellion and sin. Thank you so much, God. Thank you so much that you haven't changed your mind. Thank you that when you regret, it doesn't mean you're going to go back on your word. Thank you so much that you won't give up on us. Sometimes, God, we, we struggle to trust you because we are so aware that we deserve you giving up on us. But I thank you that it, what we think about it doesn't matter because you won't ever go back on your word. You are not a man that regrets like we do. Thank you that you can be counted on. Thank you that your promises are true now and forever. You're faithful. and You're worthy of our worship. You're the only one, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.